Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. We are um, continuing in the new series that we started last week on uh, practicing the way of Jesus, in which we examine different spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices that we can engage in that help shape us and form us into the image of Christ. And we'll be doing all of this through the lens of the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 4, uh, verse 38, and we'll pick up there in a moment. If you were here last week, uh, we started off by talking about discipleship and even what it means to be human, concluding that the end goal of humanity is to become like Jesus. And of course, that is the end goal of our discipleship as well. God created humanity to reflect his image into the world. And in a fallen world, uh, Jesus goes around calling people to be his disciples or to follow him and become more like him in the process. Uh, Jesus is the perfect image bearer of God. And then he goes around and calling people to increasingly bear his image as they follow after him. Romans 8 says it this way. It says, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Thus, our series is all about spiritual practices from the life of Jesus, but the end goal of the spiritual practices is never the spiritual practices. It is always that we would progress toward the image of Christ and increasingly experience the life that is in Him. In fact, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. Which is a stunning statement. But if we really start to analyze and unpack this, it becomes pretty clear that in the Western world, we're missing part of the equation. In the West, for the most part, we know Jesus as the truth. And so, our discipleship to Jesus, and even the way we do church, tends to center around that. It focuses on truth. We have to read the truth, and know the truth, and absorb the truth, and it's awesome, but we're actually missing the other half. Uh, We're missing Jesus as the way, as the way to walk through life moment by moment, day by day, the way to be human all over again. In fact, one scholar put it this way, it is the way of Jesus 
wedded to the truth of Jesus that allows us to experience the life of Jesus. Don't you love that? Put into, ma- into a mathematical formula, it might sound something like this. The way plus the truth equals the life. But too often, we are missing the way. We only focus on the truth. We actually don't adopt Jesus' way of life, even though that would have been central to discipleship in Jesus' day. Uh, And as a result, a lot of us, if we're honest, aren't experiencing the life. We know a lot about Jesus. We have accurate theology, but we don't experience life that is truly life. What we typically experience is knowledge of Jesus kind of bouncing around up in our heads while we live out over-busy, overburdened, anxiety-ridden, stressed-out lives that look little to nothing like the life of Jesus. If I were to do a poll right now in this room, and say, hey, here who feels like they're experiencing life that is truly life. My guess is that only a few of us would raise our hands. And maybe we'd raise them halfway, sort of hesitantly. Ah, I think, I think I know what you're talking about. And hence, We are embarking on a series on practicing the way of Jesus, on adopting his his practices, his habits, his rhythms, his way of life. We want to explore what Eugene Peterson called the unforced rhythms of grace. If you were with us last week, we unpacked our first practice, which was practicing the presence of God, and we're going to continue this week with the practice of silence and solitude. Uh, Picking up in Luke 4, verse 38, here's what it says. It says, Jesus left the synagogue. He's in the middle of a crazy long day, and he went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Now watch this. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. In the middle of sentences, loaded with action, healing suffering people, casting out demons, responding to inpatient disciples, traveling from town to town, preaching from synagogue to synagogue, we find these quiet words. 
At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. In the center of breathless activities, we hear a restful breathing. Surrounded by hours of moving, we find a moment of quiet stillness. In the heart of much involvement, there are words of withdrawal. In the midst of action, there is contemplation. And after much togetherness, there is solitude. The more I read this nearly silent sentence, locked in between loud words of action, the more I have the sense that the secret of Jesus' ministry is hidden in that lonely place where he went to pray early in the morning. In the lonely place, Jesus finds the courage to follow God's will and not his own to speak God's words and not his own, to do God's work and not his own. And this phrase, the solitary place, uh, in the Greek is eromos. Can you say eromos? Yes. And it can be translated uh, the wilderness, the lonely place, the quiet place, or the solitary place place. And Jesus went there often. In fact, if you glance further down the page, those of you who have your Bibles open, chapter 5, verse 16 says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed there. Not only that, but this is actually where Jesus' ministry starts. If you flip back one page to the start of chapter 4, it says that Jesus was baptized, anointed with the Holy Spirit, and his ministry officially begins. But it doesn't begin in the way that we would anticipate. It says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Any idea what that word is in Greek? The Eremos. Not because that's where he was weakest, but because that's where he was strongest. And it's there in the Eremos that Jesus defeats Satan. Then he comes out of the Eremos. He has one long marathon of a first day on the job only to wake up the next morning and go back to the Eremos. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, it seems that the higher the demand on his time, the more Jesus disappears into the Eremos. When you or I have a particularly exhausting day, you know the ones that are packed from morning to evening with nonstop activity, our typical impulse is probably to reach for our narcotic of choice. Netflix, a glass of red wine, a couple episodes of whatever it is, a takeout dinner, anything that helps us unwind 
or escape. But not Jesus. When life got crazy and demands were high, Jesus went to the Eremos. Sometimes for a few hours early in the morning, sometimes for a few weeks until he was ready to re-engage again. And as disciples of Jesus, the invitation on our lives is not simply to know Jesus as the truth. Uh, It is actually to go beyond that and follow Jesus as the way that leads to life. We are invited to adopt his lifestyle, to step into his rhythms, his way. And to be clear, that was always the invitation embedded in discipleship. The goal of discipleship is threefold. Uh, First off, it is to be with Jesus. Second, it is to become like Jesus. And thirdly, it is to do what Jesus would do if he were you. And notice how silence and solitude plays into all three. Silence and solitude is time set aside each day to be with Jesus. Not to do, not to accomplish, not even to pray in the conventional sense of the word, but just to be with Jesus. That's the first goal of our discipleship. Next, we are to become like Jesus, who himself prioritized silence and solitude, time with his heavenly Father as the secret center to his life and calling. And finally, you are to do what Jesus would do if he were you, meaning if Jesus were your gender and your ethnicity and your age, and had your job and your class schedule and your calling and your responsibilities, what would he do? How would he carry them? How would he structure his life, his time? And while there's um, plenty of guesswork involved in answering that question, one thing is clear. If Jesus were you, he would spend time in the Eremos. And we should too. What's holding us back? Our first problem is time. The number one reason we don't practice silence and solitude is time. In fact, with almost every spiritual discipline that we are going to unpack throughout this series, you will likely feel the impulse to minimize, reject, and set aside the practice because you don't have time. Uh, There are simply uh, too many things to get done and too many things to do and experience and not enough time in which to do them. And so we rush from activity to activity. 
multitasking our way through the day, frenetically trying to answer every email and make every meeting and get to every class and watch every episode of whatever it is and get everything done in one day. And when someone asks you, hey, how are you doing? The new standard response is, oh, I'm good, just busy. We live in a world of iPhones and emails and Wi-Fi and 24-hour news cycles and traffic and overstimulation, and many of us feel like we're moving 90 miles an hour, and if we slow down for a moment, we'll fall behind. We'll miss out. And so we can't afford to practice the way of Jesus because we don't have time. John Mark, in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says it this way. He says, today, you're far more likely to run into the enemy in the form of an alert on your phone while you're reading your Bible in the morning, or a multi-day Netflix binge, or a full-on dopamine addiction to Instagram, or a Saturday morning at the office, or another soccer game on a Sunday, or commitments after commitments after commitments in a life of speed. Next slide. Corey Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. There's truth in that. Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. And he goes on to point out how universal this is. It's not one class of people who are busy. Pay attention, he says. And you'll find this answer everywhere, across, across ethnicity, gender, stage of life, even class. College students are busy. Young parents are busy. Empty nesters living on a golf course are busy. CEOs are busy. So are baristas and part-time nannies. Americans are busy. Kiwis are busy. Germans are busy. We're all busy. But how did we get here? Why is everyone in the Western world so busy? Well, first off, our relationship to time itself has actually shifted in recent years. For most of human history, human life was governed by the rhythms of nature. Our primary light was the sun. So when the sun came up, Everyone naturally began to woke up and go about their work. And when the sun went down, well, there's only so much you can do by campfire or candlelight. And so it wasn't long before everyone wound down and went to bed. Uh, and for thousands upon thousands of years, this worked wonderfully. Uh, fast forward to 1879 when Thomas Edison invented a new form of light called the light bulb. Before the unveiling of this invention, 
human beings were governed by the sun, and we averaged 11 hours of sleep a night. 11. Post-light bulb, everything changed. Some of you are like crying a little bit on the inside right now. Like that's, that's terrible. Now we are no longer bound by nature. We have lights and alarm clocks and coffee and stimulants, and we push ourselves to do more than ever before. In the 1960s, uh, a Senate subcommittee estimated that by the mid-80s, when I was born, Americans would be working just 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year. Okay? That's like three months of full-time work in a year. They actually thought the problem of our lifetimes would be too much leisure time, which is hilarious. In reality, during that same time period, Americans have actually begun working more than ever before. We now work an additional four weeks worth of time every year compared to what they worked in the 1970s, which wasn't that many years ago. So not only are we working more than ever, we are also faced with more digital distraction than ever, which tends to swallow up the vast majority of our non-work hours. Uh, The average iPhone user spends 2.5 hours a day on their phones, double that if you're a millennial, which I am. Um, The average American, this is all Americans, spend over seven hours a day watching TV, which makes me want to cry. And we haven't even gotten to video games yet. The average American male plays 10,000 hours worth of video games by the time they turn 21. 10,000 hours. With 10,000 hours... You can literally become an expert in any subject in the world. You can be considered an expert. With 10,000 hours, you could get your bachelor's degree and a master's degree. With 10,000 hours, you could memorize the New Testament. Memorized. Oh, yeah, well, I'm like really good at Call of Duty. Congratulations. Not only do we work more than ever, but in the digital age, we seem to be wasting more time than ever. If we took a fraction of our social media and TV watching time and used them to engage in the spiritual practices, uh, our entire lives would change with a fraction of the time that we waste. And yet somehow, when it comes to the spiritual practices and adopting the lifestyle of Jesus, we reject most of it, not because it doesn't sound awesome, but because we just don't have time. Or do we? One study of 20,000 Christians around the world found that busyness was one of the biggest factors 
inhibiting their spiritual growth, and the study proposed the following theory. Stick with this if you can. They proposed that Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness and overload, which leads to God becoming marginalized or put on the back burner in their lives, which leads to a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which then leads to even more conformity to busyness and overload. And and that cycle begins to feed off itself. In today's world, it would seem that the vast majority are simply too busy to live emotionally healthy and spiritually vibrant lives. We are, quote, too alive to be dead, but too dead to be fully alive. Or said another way, we are too addicted too weak and too distracted to do what we all know is important. And right in the midst of it, Jesus of Nazareth extends this simple invitation. Come, follow me. Learn from me. Do life with me. I am the way. Jesus had more demands on his life than any of us will ever have. And yet, when life got busy, Jesus went to the Eremos, to the secret place. He practiced silence and solitude. He went to be with his heavenly Father. And you can too. For those who are ready to start this practice, here are some suggestions on where to begin. Uh, First, solitude. Uh, Solitude means that you're alone, but not completely. This isn't about isolation. It's not about loneliness. It's actually about finding a space where we can be present to ourselves and present to God, where we can engage with God in a space that's safe and uncomplicated. It's a space in which we open ourselves up to God and receive from Him. It could be as simple as your bedroom in the morning before you start your day. Uh, For me, it's always been a, a park or an outdoor space Uh, And this has actually become so important to me um, that any time I've chosen a house or an apartment in my adult life, I've always factored in how close it is to a park. Because I know, like, I won't get in the car and go drive somewhere to to practice this. But I'll walk. If I can walk there, then I'll do it all the time. And so I actually factor this into where do we want to live, what's going to be nearby, I want to find that place of solitude where I can be alone with God and my own thoughts. Um, Two years ago, my wife and I bought our first home, uh, and we intentionally purchased one that's within walking distance of Riverside State Park. So for me, 
for these last two years, that is my Eremos. And, and I go uh, almost every single day, I, I find time to walk over there, to be in the Eremos, to, to go to the wilderness, to find a solitary place. Uh, odds are, especially in a city like ours, you already live within walking distance uh, of a park. Uh, but if not, really any solitary space will do. Your bedroom works just fine as long as you're alone. Um, I'm a pretty solid introvert, which means that my gravitational pull toward silence and solitude is greater than most. Like, I have that working in my favor. But I'm also born and bred in a culture of speed and productivity. And I love both. Between leading a church plant uh, and serving a family of five, my days are pretty packed. And so there's a real sense Uh, in which I have to force myself uh, to wake up early, to get out the door, and to practice this. I'm the very opposite of a morning person. Um, And so this this takes practice for me to work into this. Um, But almost every day, uh, I get myself up out of bed early enough to walk out the door and spend time in the Eremos. Uh, most days now, I have a home office, so I, I leave the house to practice this and then come back uh, to start my day. Um, up until uh, more recently, for the first couple years of the church plant, I was also substitute teaching. So when I was doing that, I would again wake up a little bit early, drive across town to whatever school I was subbing at, and, and get there early, like 30 minutes early, never more than like an hour, but some more than like five minutes, right? I would show up early and then I would walk. I would walk the streets. I would walk to the nearest park. I would do uh, whatever I could to engage in this time. I walk, I listen, I speak to God, I pray over the day that lies out in front. I give him gratitude I, I practice that. I find, I find my grounding and my center in him. I receive his spirit, his grace, his words of affirmation and identity. I, I remember who I am. I remember my calling, why I'm here, what it is that God is asking me to do. And sometimes, if I'm honest, my mind runs wild and, I, and I'm not present to God. I'm not present to the moment. I never enter in and, and that time passes by and, and that's okay. Not every day is going to be amazing in this practice. But <clears throat> more often than not, this is the best part of my day. And it sets the tone, it sets the trajectory for everything else that follows. It took a lot of discipline for me as a non-morning person to start this practice. But now that I have, I never want to go back. It's just too good. Outside of Sunday gatherings, the best experiences that I've ever had with God are here. 
in, in the secret place. And you can start this practice with just 15 minutes on your couch in the morning before your roommates get up or whatever it is. But in order for this to be a meaningful time, first you need solitude, and second, you need silence. And silence is more nuanced than it first appears. There are actually two components to silence, external and internal. External silence is pretty straightforward. It means no noise. If you're note takers, you might want to write that down. Okay? It's profound. No music playing in your headphones. No roommates doing whatever they do. No kids screaming for your attention. No TV on in the background. Nothing. You you get this strange din of silence ringing in your ears. There's no noise. But the second aspect of silence is internal noise or internal silence. And internal silence is a trickier beast to master. Turning off your phone is one thing. Turning off your mind is another. And odds are you have an ongoing commentary in your mind that tends to run wild, constantly replaying that nasty conversation with the boss, constantly picking at emotional scabs and wounds from the past, constantly fantasizing about things we have no business fantasizing about. That girl, that guy, that car, that life, that revenge on the one we think deserves it. Constantly worrying about a thousand different things, running through hypothetical scenarios that evoke and stir up our fear and our anxiety. Constantly comparing our lives to the next person's, endlessly dreaming about all the things that we wish we had. Which, by the way, poisons the life that you actually have. But those thoughts, they tend to keep running. And the sad reality is that many of us feel trapped by toxic and unhealthy patterns in our own minds. If the first reason we don't practice silence and solitude is a lack of time and an over-busy schedule, then the second reason that we don't practice silence and solitude is our fear of silence and solitude. Some of us are terrified to be alone with God and our own thoughts. We are afraid to face reality. And so we surround ourselves with external noise in an attempt to drown out the internal noise because we are terrified of what's down there. 
the childhood wounds we still carry, our nagging self-doubt, the fear of being unmasked for who you really are, that driving sense that we just aren't good enough, our fear of facing our own failures and our own human limitations, our inability to process loss and disappointment over the lives that we lead. We are afraid of what's down there, and so we get busy and we distract ourselves. We live in a world with just enough distraction to avoid the wound that could lead us to healing and life. Did you catch that? The the wounds you carry, that mental chatter that just won't shut up, those deep fears and insecurities that you carry, that we all carry, were meant to drive us into the secret place where we find healing and rest before God. In silence and solitude, we find joy and restoration. We wake back up to God and our own souls. This is where Jesus found his center, his identity, his calling. This is where Jesus found a spiritual equilibrium in his life. This is where he learned to hear the voice of his heavenly father. He lived out of this place. Life without a quiet center quickly becomes destructive. And part of the invitation to discipleship under Jesus is regaining this quiet center in a world that won't stop talking. Jesus needed this a lot. Do you? Henry Nouwen said it this way. He said, without solitude... It is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. No exceptions. No softening the blow. No nuance. Just truth. If you don't have time to practice this, then in reality, you might not have time to be a follower of Jesus. You are in a relationship with the God of the universe, and relationships take time. If a married couple were to come to me because they were struggling in their marriage, uh, first off, I'd probably send them to Kelly. But if Kelly was on vacation, then the first thing I'd ask about is the time that they spend together. Do you take a night of the week 
just to have quality time together uh, or, or maybe go on a date night of some sort? Do you have like 30 minutes a day where you can just sit and connect and talk and unwind? Do you maybe find a bit of quality time on the weekends here and there, kind of the, the bare minimum for a healthy marriage? And if someone were to tell me, hey, I don't have time to connect with my spouse in that way, all while spending 30 hours a week watching TV and another 15 on Instagram, then I would lovingly inform them that they do have time. They're just wasting it. Meaning, if you don't have time for the bare minimum, then you don't have time for a spouse. You don't. So either you radically rethink your schedule or you're headed for a divorce. Choice is yours. Which do you prefer? That's how marriage works. Is it any different with God? You get out what you put in. And if you take time to practice silence and solitude, you will discover a whole new way of life, a life that starts to look more and more like Jesus, a life with a quiet center, an intimacy with God, an awareness of his presence, an awareness of who you are in him, your identity, your calling, your true self, what to say yes to, what to say no to, a life where love and joy and peace slowly start to become your default settings. You are invited to a whole new way of life. There's no guilt trip here. There's no pressure. There's no legalism. Only invitation. Invitation to a new way. Invitation into the unforced rhythms of grace. And I don't know about you, but if I have to choose between Instagram and the Eremos, I choose the Eremos. Here's to life with a quiet center. Let's pray.